Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up, we look at the results of Tuesday's local primaries in Connecticut with political science professor Dr. Jonathan Wharton. What local elections have you been watching? First, efforts to get people out of Afghanistan and help Afghan refugees continue after the Taliban takeover. Today, where we live, 4th District Congressman Jim Himes joins us to talk about what his office has done to help, and we find out his views on the American withdrawal. Do you live in the 4th Congressional District? What questions do you have for Representative Himes? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Congressman Jim Himes joins us on Zoom. Welcome back to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Our listeners know you represent the 4th District. That's the southwestern part of the state. That includes most of Fairfield County, some of New Haven County. You're also a senior member of the House Intelligence Committee. And we'll be talking about um, some new leadership roles that you've taken on, including a select committee on economic disparity later in the show. But I wanted to start off first, talk about Afghanistan. Uh, There was a Quinnipiac University poll that came out just yesterday that found more than half of Americans say they approve of President Biden Biden's decision to withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan. However, Americans give Biden a negative percent score, 31 to 65, for the way he handled the withdrawal. And then more than six in 10 Americans say they think troops will have to return to Afghanistan to fight terrorism. So what's your take, Congressman? Well, I'm not surprised by those numbers. Um, you know, most Americans, I'm surprised it's only half in that poll. Most Americans understand and have understood for a long time that we were really not achieving uh, the mission, whatever that mission might have been in Afghanistan. Um, you know, our, our troops, particularly when we had a, lo- a smaller footprint, uh, were barely holding the line. In fact, well before the Biden administration, of course, the Taliban was gaining uh, territory in a, in, a, in a very big way. And, and of course, yeah, I mean, let's face it, there's no spin you can put on it. The withdrawal was chaotic. Um, and, uh, you know, that we've, we've observed uh, almost 20 years worth of mistakes in, uh, in Afghanistan by four different presidents. Um, so I am not shy about saying that the Biden administration will have to own up to its uh, uh, role in a chaotic withdrawal. But I mean, this has been a mismanaged effort uh, on the part of the political leadership for a very long time. What more uh, could have been done uh, to uh, keep this from being a debacle when it came to withdrawing and helping uh, so many trying to flee? When we think about the the deal that was reached under the Trump administration with the Taliban, I mean, how much could the Biden administration really have done based on that agreement? Well, I think where the Biden administration has some answering to do um, and I watched this pretty closely as a member of the Intelligence Committee, is it was pretty clear to everyone that when they became the administration in January, when the inauguration occurred, 
um, that they had no options in Afghanistan. Uh, I, I pointed out that in January, there were more troops protecting the Congress on Capitol Hill by a factor of three than there were in Afghanistan. And so we had no options at all. Uh, in Afghanistan, and we had an intelligence community was warning that was warning that things could go south very quickly, and the administration did not plan for the worst case scenario. So I think that's where responsibility lies with the Biden administration. You can ask the question, well, what else could they have done? And the answer to that question inevitably involves more troops, okay, which, of course, would have opened up a whole other line of criticism. But you're right in the way you frame the question, because um, you know, for years and years and years, this has been going wrong. I've been to Afghanistan several times. Each time I was assured that success was just around the corner. And, if, and, and of course it wasn't. Well, we think about the people that have been left behind, also uh, many that were able to flee to other countries, but now are stuck. You know, what role uh, should the U.S. continue to play to help them, considering uh, many of them helped the U.S. military and allies over the last 20 years? The answer to that question is very clear. The answer is uh, we need to play as big a role as we can um, for a moral reason, which is these people helped us and they are now in jeopardy. Um, There's a pushback to that, of course, right? I mean, the Taliban, whose national budget will depend to to, to the tune of 70% on foreign aid, has a very strong incentive to to, to at least try to behave itself. So there, there, there is a countervailing force, but we, we still have, I think, probably thousands of people that helped us out who are in jeopardy. And we cannot stop our efforts, our diplomatic efforts at this point, uh, until we have made sure that everybody who helped us was safe. It's a moral issue, as I said before. It's also a, 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 an operational issue. Um, I hope no, no time soon, but there will be other times in the future where we will be in a foreign and, and, and unusual country where we don't speak the language or understand the culture. And we're going to need the help of people on the ground to achieve whatever mission we may have. You're hearing 4th District Congressman Jim Himes here on Where We Live. If you have a question for him, the number is 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to to ask you about uh, Hearst, Connecticut, published a story about a Bridgeport public school principal who worked to get two young students and their mother back from Afghanistan after they had gone this summer to visit. Can you talk about, in general terms, how your office, helped with that arrangement uh, to rescue this family? Yeah, yeah. So um, that was a case, I think, that was similar to uh, probably two dozen cases that we worked on where we were just a conduit of information. Um, Any number of constituents and and non-constituents, frankly, I had friends in, in Europe who were calling up and saying, hey, there's this girls' school where we need to evacuate the students. Um, And the exercise was one of making sure that the State Department and the Department of Defense, of course, the Department of Defense was ultimately responsible for the gates to the airport, knew uh, where people were, uh, what their status was, because, of course, the government was giving priority to U.S. citizens and to Afghans who, you know, who would qualify for the CIV status. So um, our, our role was really largely one of knowing who, what the status was, and where in Afghanistan people were, and making sure that in real time the State Department and the Department of Defense knew where those people were. Um, You know, we probably all in, um, though we were intimately involved in probably two dozen cases, um, all in, we probably got a total of 700 or 800 referrals of information that we were conveying on to the State Department. Mm -hmm. 
I understand you signed a letter just a couple weeks ago asking the administration to waive a $575 fee for Afghans trying to come to the U.S. Is that fee still in place, Congressman? Uh, it, it is today, but I hope it isn't uh, by the end of the week. Um, this is just a sort of silly bureaucratic thing that is an impediment to doing what I said is absolutely uh, an imperative, which is that we get the people out. And, and just by way of background, when you apply uh, for a waiver for the $575 fee, uh, they adjudicate that that need for a waiver before they get to your uh, to, before they get to your status. So we just said, look, do this, you know, waive the waive the fee for everybody. Needless to say, that's a, a, a lot of money for somebody who is fleeing uh, for their lives in Afghanistan. So in this case, waive the fee and only work on the uh, the question of whether you know what the status of the individual is and, and whether they qualify to get out. So anyway, I hope that we see some success. We we certainly had a a strong voice out of the Congress saying this is just bureaucratic red tape that is going to impede our our mission. So let's get rid of it. I wanted to talk a little bit about just the future of Afghanistan and what will be left under the Taliban rule. Uh, you are chair of the National Security, International Development and Monetary Policy Subcommittee. So will you have any say in what sanctions are put on Afghanistan under the Taliban or even how much aid goes to this country? Because people will be suffering. Yeah, yeah, no, the Congress generally and, and, and bo both of my committees, Financial Services, uh, which has uh, jurisdiction over the Department of Treasury, which, uh, which does sanctions, um, and the Intelligence Committee will, of course, play a big role, as will the president. Um, now, uh, you know, that you, you, you asked the question of the hour, right? You know, on the one hand, nobody's under the um, impression that, 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 that this is clearly Taliban 2.0, that these guys have sort of learned their lesson and they're going to be some sort of, you know, liberal force in, uh, in, in Afghanistan politics. Nobody believes that, especially given the people that they appointed in their provisional government. However, the flip side of that, of course, as we talked briefly about this, you know, 70% of the Afghan budget is foreign aid. $7 billion in Afghan reserves, that's money the country could really use, have been frozen here in the United States. Uh, you know, the, the, the free passage of aid workers, uh, you know, European, American, Asian aid workers is essential to the well-being of the country. So all of those things combine to give the Taliban a huge incentive to uh, uh, to behave uh, as respectably as they can. So, you know, there, there's a lot of possible outcomes here. Right. And, and you know, again, my intuition, my intuition is that, you know, they probably evolve in a direction that will be uncomfortable. Congressman Himes, can you hear us? Oh, it looks um, like... Uh, yes, I can oh, hear you. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, you broke up there. Yeah, I was just saying that, you know, uh, is it possible that they wind up the way the Iranian regime winds up? You know, not a regime that we in any way would support, um, but which at least allows for some voice uh, inside the country, allows for some politics, allows for some rights. Um, but we'll see. That's That's the question of the hour. Yeah, we, we know that Secretary of State Blinken was testifying before, before Congress over the last two days before a certain committee. So what have we learned about the Biden administration's plans for the for the withdrawal that surprised you or angered you or even about Republican opposition to the administration? Well, the politics are not surprising. Um, and the lack of principle in the politics is not surprising. I mean, I I. I'm thinking back to three years ago when um, 
And, and, and again, let me say up front that the Biden administration absolutely has things to answer for. So I'm not trying to make a partisan point here. I'm trying to make the point I made earlier, which is there's plenty of blame to go around here. I mean, you know, why did the Afghan military fold uh, just just, you know, as they say, like a cheap tent? Um, the answer to that question partly lies in the fact that the United States under Donald Trump opened negotiations with the Taliban, with our enemies, and didn't invite the Afghans, right? Didn't invite the Afghanistan government. Well, what kind of a signal do you think that sends to the, you know, to the colonel or to the sergeant or to the private that now the United States is is negotiating with the enemy and you're not even invited? I mean, I think in that moment, an awful lot of soldiers in the military that we'd spent 20 years trying to build say, hey, we can read the writing on the wall here. So, um, but again, just to, just to, you know, restate what I said before, Um, you know, the Biden administration has now been in power for nine months. For nine months, uh, they have not had any uh, options because they haven't had the firepower on the ground to develop options. Um, Putting more firepower on the ground wouldn't have been necessarily a good option, right? Americans would have objected to the insertion of another 20,000 troops into Afghanistan. Um, but again, you know, as as the presidential motto, uh, you know, famously says, the buck stops with the president. And I do think that Congress has a role in, in really understanding um, how this was allowed to go so chaotically. Before we take a call, just one more question. When I mentioned Republican opposition, do you think it was reasonable or fair that the GOP lawmakers um, are demanding Blinken's resignation over this? Well, it's odd. I didn't hear them calling for Mike Pompeo's resignation when Mike Pompeo took a photograph with the with the head of the Taliban or when Mike Pompeo, you know, this is politics. Yeah. Right. Uh, again, um, I, as a Democrat, I don't have any problem saying that, number one, I'm glad we're out of Afghanistan. It's, it, that We're 10, maybe 15 years too late in doing that. I wish that the withdrawal had not been as chaotic. It probably, probably could have been better. But, you know, what you're hearing is both a combination of hypocrisy and politics. You know, uh, we were we were Blinken is not wrong when he says we inherited a deadline from the Trump administration. It was an end of May deadline. Will be gone. That deadline was extended by many months. Um, So, again, when uh, a Republican is just fine with the way the Trump administration handled a, a, a catastrophic negotiation, but calls for the Democratic Secretary of State's resignation, well, you, you know what's going on there. You're hearing Jim Himes here on Where We Live. Congressman represents the 4th Congressional District. That's the southwestern part of our state. You can join us with a question, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Chris is calling in. Go ahead, Chris. Hi, uh, uh, glad to have you on, uh, Congressman. And you just kind of teed up my question with the hypocrisy and politics. Uh, do you have confidence that we're going to see justice served uh, regarding the insurrection of January 6th? Um, yeah, um, I, I, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Look, I think I think in two ways. Um, number one, um, this commission is acting very, the commission led by uh, uh, Chairman um, Benny Thompson um, is acting very aggressively. Uh, and I support them and will demand that they continue to do so. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, there's also the judgment of history, right? Uh, let me give you an example. So Chris Christie in a speech at the Ronald Reagan Museum yesterday, I think it was yesterday, you know, Chris Christie, who was intimately involved with the Trump administration from moment one, 
begins to criticize uh, the insurrectionist spirit inside the Trump administration. George W. Bush, in the speech he gave on 9-11, doesn't name the Trump administration, but talks about the you know, foul spirit of those who would desecrate the symbols of democracy and actually draws an analogy between uh, uh, foreign terrorists and domestic right wing terrorists. Um, So you see the judgment of history coming, but that's no substitute, of course, for the January 6th committee um, to do full, fair and comprehensive uh, work, which will lead, I hope, to accountability. Again, my guest is Jim Himes, represents the 4th Congressional District. Uh, He's here to answer your questions, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We'll be back after a short break. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. My guest today, Congressman Jim Himes, who represents the 4th District in the southwestern part of the state. He's here to answer your questions, too. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Congressman, we got a listener tweet that mentioned the Financial Services Committee, which you sit on, just passed the Creating, Preserving, and Greening Affordable Housing Bill. Uh, that's supposed to address affordable housing and homelessness. Uh, the listener wants to know what you plan to do to address Connecticut's long history of discriminatory zoning policies. Yeah, great, great, great question. Um, and and the answer has to be um, split between the three levels of government, all of which can um, can really make can really move the needle here, right? So, um, and and I'm not going to try to dodge the question, but you know, one of the most powerful things we can do. Um, is inclusionary zoning, right? Uh, right now, we have a lot of uh, exclusionary zoning uh, in uh, in parts of Connecticut, but inclusionary zoning particularly emphasizes the creation of affordable housing um, near transportation nodes um, in areas where maybe people don't have to have a car to get to work. So, in you know higher concentrate, you know higher density areas. So, inclusionary zoning is something that really, really can move the needle. 
you know, the state, uh, I, I try to stay out of my state uh, colleagues' lanes, but there, it's, uh, there's obviously been a vigorous conversation about, uh, about uh, things like, you know, making it easier for people to rent uh, empty spaces above their garage, that sort of thing. And then at the federal level, which, which points back at me, um, you know, an awful lot of the affordable housing that gets built in this country uh, uh, gets built with subsidy from the federal government. And what I think we need to do is we need to use that subsidy, whether it's the low income housing tax credit or, or whatever it may be. There's all sorts of programs um, to demand uh, greener, cleaner, more sustainable, more just uh, affordable housing, meaning we don't build awful affordable housing, you know, next to power plants where you have, you know, low quality air. We actually, you know, do it in a way that is uh, consistent with the dignity of people who live um, in those apartments. And, and, I, and I do think we're making some credit on, uh, I'm sorry, making some progress uh, on that. Um, but um, this, of course, this uh, infrastructure bill that we hope to pass in the next uh, two weeks or so uh, will really move the needle on providing the resources for what we hope is a much more progressive housing policy than what we've seen in this country in the last couple of generations. Uh, speaking of affordable housing, uh, we also know that the, the racial wealth gap continues to grow. And over the last year, or in the spring, I should say, uh, Speaker Pelosi named you chair of the House Economic Disparity and Fairness and Growth Committee. So talk about the committee's work and you know how uh, we can address the racial wealth gap. Obviously, your district, a perfect example of the disparities that exist. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, and I was I was very I was very honored uh, that Speaker Pelosi asked me to chair this committee. Um, you know, this is this is a problem that you know maybe doesn't get quite the uh, airtime that climate change does. You know, when a when 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 the weather radically is you know changes across a period of 10, 20 years. Um, but it's a very very serious problem. Um, the fact that more and more, more frankly than at any point in our history wealth and income are becoming concentrated in a tiny percentage uh, of the country. You, know, you can talk about the top 1%, you can talk about the top 3%, but the point is that half of this country really has almost no assets whatsoever, and the top 1% of the country owns a huge, huge chunk of the country. And the problem with that is threefold. Number one, and perhaps most importantly, and I feel this every single day in southwestern Connecticut, there's a moral issue there, right? When when two miles separate some of the wealthiest people in the country from some of the poorest people in the country, we're just doing something wrong from a moral standpoint. Economically, it's a bad thing because when you have that kind of concentrated income, it actually drags down your economic growth, which, by the way, is something that I hope that the Republicans will sort of, you know, on the committee will agree with me on. And then and then finally, look, I think this has political ramifications, right? I, it, it can't possibly be an accident that a lot of the energy in the last 10 years has come from candidates who have said the whole system is rigged against you. It's rigged. It's rigged. Well, well where does that come from? From the fact that I think, you know, seven or eight out of 10 Americans do feel like the deck is stacked against them. And, and that's dangerous, right? Because eventually people will say, hey, this is not a system that's working. So I'm going to seek solace in the arms of a candidate like Donald Trump, who's at least being honest about the system being. You're hearing Congressman Jim Himes on where we live. He's on Zoom. We're hoping his uh, connection uh, stays strong for the rest of our, our conversation. Uh, you know, you mentioned the Republicans. Are the Republicans on the committee? I thought that they had pulled out uh, when there was, uh, you know, argument over the creation of a committee to investigate the supporters rioting uh, at the U.S. Capitol. Um, we know that, you know, partisanship is alive and well. And, um, you know, how much work will this committee get done? I understand there's only been one hearing so far. Yeah, there's been one. Um, we were only 
constituted whatever you know two months ago uh, and then of course we've had the august uh, break so we we'll, we're going to get right back to it uh when we get back next week uh we will have another hearing on the effects of uh, globalization and trade you know trade has been something that has in some regards uh hollowed out our industrial base in this country so we're going to take a hard look at that um uh, yeah, you're right. You're right. You know, uh, Kevin McCarthy was on the verge of appointing the Republican members of the committee, and I'd actually spent a bunch of time with the lead Republican. I, I, I really do care a lot that this committee proceed in a bipartisan fashion because this is this is a this is a nonpartisan problem, right? Um, wealth disparity is very evident in blue Connecticut. It's also dramatically evident in deep, deep red parts of the country. So my hope is, yes, we got caught up in the January 6th uh, uh, committee when when Speaker Pelosi refused to seat Jim Jordan, which I think was appropriate. Uh, Kevin McCarthy had a little bit of a tantrum and said, well, I'm not putting any Republicans on Himes's committee, which is, you know, again, a little silly. But uh, but that was that was the way that it played out. But I I do hope that we get a good bipartisan committee where we can have a robust and constructive debate. Again, you're hearing Congressman Jim Himes here on Where We Live. If you want to ask him a question, here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Saleh is calling in. Saleh, what's your question for Congressman Himes? Uh, Congressman, thank you for answering the question. My question is, the ground force in Afghanistan were not fighting since 2014. And by leaving Afghanistan, we left multi-billion dollar infrastructure to the Chinese and Pakistanis and the Iranians in the area. Why the rush to leave? Well, (laughs) Saleh, thank you for the question. Um, I think when you consider that we had a military presence on the ground for 20 years, uh, rush to leave may be, uh, may, may be not quite the right characterization. Um, but in the end there, um, look, uh, President Biden um, ran. His campaign was based on the notion that he would bring this war to a close, that he would take U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. That was his position when he ran for president. It is a position that is supported by the majority of the American people, and he did it. Um, and was it done smoothly? No, we've talked about this this morning. It was not done smoothly, and, and people have to answer for that. Um, but uh, keeping, if I can sort of dissect the premise of your question, keeping young men and women in uniform in harm's way in Afghanistan just to prevent the Chinese, say, from you know, uh, getting contracts for the mining of minerals. That's that's not what our military is for. So, again, I support, even as I am very concerned about the way in which it was done, I support the president in his finally, finally, after 20 years, ending our military presence there. And we should think about the interest of the Chinese and the Russians and others in mineral rights in the area. And by the way, we will have those interests too, as yet one more reason why the Taliban will have an incentive um, to create a, a stable country. Uh, the Chinese and the Russians aren't going to want to be mining um, rare earth minerals um, in an area where their people can be killed. So uh, it's, a, it's yet another incentive for why the Taliban should think hard about trying to establish some stability in their country, which, as you point out, is, is rich in natural resources.
You can join us, 888-720-9677, if you have a question for Congressman Jim Himes. You referenced earlier your bicycle ride, a very long bicycle ride, and infrastructure uh, funding. So let's talk about that. And again, so much focus often we think of infrastructure on, on highways and bridges, but thinking about uh, mass transit as well and funding for, for, uh, for broadband, uh, Congressman. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks for uh, thanks for uh, reminding me of a of a lovely, lovely day. I rode from uh, uh, the Long Island Sound in Westport, Connecticut, due north, up to the uh, Massachusetts border to a great pub just across the uh, the line there. Um, and I and I did it uh, one because it was a heck of a lot of fun, um, but more importantly because. Um, you know, I, uh, I I think it's really important that Connecticut make some progress in becoming a more bicycle, more pedestrian friendly state. We've got a long way to go. Um, I see this whenever I'm in Washington, Washington, the city of Washington, whatever you think of it, it made a huge commitment to being really bike friendly. And as a consequence, if you get if you stand on any street in Washington at about 830 in the morning, you'll see hundreds of bicyclists going to work. Why is that good? It's awfully healthy for the people who are biking rather than uh, sitting in a car. It takes cars off the road and it just makes for a much more pleasant, cleaner city. And I think we can do a lot here in the state of Connecticut, maybe not quite as much as in Washington. It's pretty, pretty flat place. Generally, we've got a lot of hills in Connecticut, but I think we can do a much better job about getting people out of their cars in places like Hartford and and New Haven and Bridgeport and and uh, and, and and giving them the option of, of, of cycling. Uh, it's, a, it's obviously a huge win. I did it right before Labor Day. I wanted people to see that there was a great alternative to, uh, you know, sitting on a couch playing video games or whatever it might be. Um, uh, and I was, frankly, I was stunned. You know, we're, we're, we're a little insular here in the state of Connecticut. But when I got up into towns that aren't in my district, like Bethlehem and uh, 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 Newtown, my God, we've got beautiful countryside in this state. You know, I wanted to talk more with you about uh, pedestrian and cyclist safety. We've done uh, several shows on where we live when we think about the number of pedestrian fatalities and cyclists uh, killed in recent years. And so how the infrastructure bill will help with that, help local governments reduce uh, these crashes. Yeah, so um, the specific answer to your question is that the infrastructure bill that I'm confident will pass sometime in the next two or three weeks has money for programs that have really shown to work. Safe Streets is a, is a big example. It really heavily funds Safe Streets. Safe Streets is about doing the many technical things you can do to slow traffic down, everything from actually creating designated bike lanes to you know, um, uh, much more clearly marked pedestrian crossing areas um, to more visionary and modern things um, that you know, create corridors between um, you know, train stations and downtowns, that sort of thing. Um, and so uh, it's a real win-win here, as I said before. If we can pass this infrastructure bill, um, cities in particular, because it's easier to do biking in, in areas that are, are that are dense uh, than it is to in far-flung suburbs. But um, you know, cities will have a really a real opportunity to change the look and feel of their downtowns in ways that, as I said before, are healthier, are more sustainable, are cleaner, uh, and are just a lot more fun for the residents of those cities. You can ask a question of Congressman Jim Himes at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Let's talk about uh, the Connecticut Reapportionment Committee. They're holding public hearings uh, this week. How do we draw state and federal political districts, including yours? I understand the 4th Congressional District will get geographically smaller because the population grew, while it stayed roughly the same or shrank in the state's other congressional 
district. So do you have any sense right now of what part of your district might be absorbed by another? Yeah, um, no, I don't. I don't. It's obviously not a decision I make, but you're absolutely right about the facts. And it, it actually points to something larger. We don't necessarily need to get into it. To some extent, Connecticut is a tale of two cities. I, I Connecticut, where the population has really skyrocketed, in particular in Stanford. I saw a number that the population of Stanford had gone up by something like 10,000 in a decade. Um, and you know, people, particularly Republicans, are uh, you know enjoy sort of saying that Connecticut is in stasis, that the population is flat, which, by the way, is not true, but that the economy has, you know, come down to southwestern Connecticut where businesses are moving in, people are moving in. Um, and so all that, again, that's a different topic of conversation. It's a serious one, right, because there are areas of the state that are that are as seriously economically challenged. But to get to your question. Um, yes, the fourth congressional district in southwestern Connecticut needs to get rid of about 20,000 um, people. Um, and generally speaking, the districts need to shift to the West. So the, the um, Joe Courtney's district, which is basically the eastern half of the state of Connecticut, uh, needs to pick up population, which means he needs to move West. And so I, I don't know what they're going to do. But if you look at the perimeters of my congressional district, you know, on the, on the East, you're talking about towns like Shelton and Oxford, maybe Monroe. To the north, you're talking about population centers in Ridgefield. And as you probably know, this is a process that starts with a commission um, in Hartford. And, you know, they'll obviously do their work and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see where we end up. But yeah, I'm, I'm sad to imagine that I'll be losing 20,000 or so constituents. You know, a lot of people will be watching the midterm elections, you know, the question of whether the House will, uh, the control will flip to the GOP. And so what issues are you most concerned with uh, that need to be addressed when we think about women's rights or voting rights, uh, Congressman? Well, I think, um, I, I think you named with them, but I would put another issue maybe just of those two. And this is from a political standpoint, obviously, you, you ask about it in the context of keeping the House. Um, I think issue number one that will determine the outcome of the 2022 midterm elections will be, you know, did the Democrats deliver economically for people who are um, uh, still stressed, right? The economy has been growing for some time now, but we still have lots of people looking for work. We still have people who are worried about going to work because of the COVID uh, uh, pandemic. Um, and so I think the big question is, and this, will, this is a question that's going to be asked in the, you know, by all but the wealthiest Americans is, you know, we gave the Democrats a chance, Joe Biden, Democratic Senate, Democratic House. Um, did they deliver um, economic aid to me? I think that's the key question. But then you're absolutely right. Um, I think a lot of Americans are looking at what Texas just did, speaking of women's reproductive rights, where not only did they say we're going to make abortion effectively illegal, um, but we're going to we're going to pay bounty hunters ten thousand dollars to snoop around in women's healthcare decisions um, and empower them. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you, do you really think these are going to be good people operating with good investigative te techniques? No, that's it's whatever you think about about abortion. And I understand there are people on, on, on both sides of that debate. What Texas just did is 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 completely insane. Uh, and I and I think a lot of women in, uh, are, are going to look at that and say, wow, really? That's that's where the and, you know, and, and, and act accordingly in, in November of 2022. 
Again, you're hearing Congressman Jim Himes on Zoom here on Where We Live. Uh, just a few more minutes with him. You can call in at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Let's talk about this new book by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, The Washington Post, uh, saying that after President Trump stirred up a crowd that fought its way into the U.S. Capitol, Trump's top military advisor, Joint Chiefs Chairman General Milley, took steps to ensure that Trump did not launch a potentially dangerous military or nuclear strike. Uh, some of our commenters on Twitter who do not like President Biden compare that situation uh, to what it would be like if the military reinforced the precautions for nuclear strikes for President Biden. Do you think that's a fair analogy, or do you think that President Trump and Biden are just too different for a comparison like that? Um, you know, it's a sad uh, reflection on our politics today that all you need to say when your guy gets criticized, and maybe I bought myself a little bit of credibility in this conversation because I was willing as a Democrat to criticize the Biden administration's um, handling of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. But it's a sad reflection on our politics that all you need to do to refute somebody else's argument about whether Donald Trump was a fit president is say, well, what about this? What about that? You know, we don't let our toddlers win moral arguments on that basis. You know, well, what about what my little brother did? And yet today that is the state of American political dialogue. Was Donald Trump a different president than Joe Biden? I mean, it, it's almost a laughable question, right? Um, you know, D Donald Trump's own people, uh, Chris Christie, you know, his own party, people of courage like 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 Liz Cheney, you know, know that he was a profoundly dangerous, profoundly corrupt individual, not particularly interested in the presidency, uh, certainly not interested in the dignity of the presidency. Um, and Joe Biden is obviously the opposite of all those things. And by the way, Joe Biden, you can criticize him for all kinds of things. But, you know, to say that Joe Biden isn't sort of an experienced thoughtful, empathetic person is just is just not right. So um, now let's get to the really hard question. And I, I want to be careful about this because I haven't read the book and I don't know exactly what General Milley did. Um, but um, let's let's start with the obvious. We have civilian control of the military in this country and anything which dilutes or erodes civilian control of the military is a terribly frightening prospect. Now, remember, Donald Trump himself, you know, urged, wanted to use the military against domestic protesters. So, again, um, you know, there's the, what's good for the goose is good for the gander here. But Congress certainly has an interest in learning what General Milley did, why he did it and what the implications are. Um, I don't want to go a lot further than that right now, because, again, I, I think the facts the book hasn't even been released yet. So nobody's nobody's got all the facts. I wanted to fit in one more caller. Uh, Brian, you're calling in from Woodbridge. Quickly with your question. Well, Congressman mentioned wealth disparity in the country and how that makes people feel like the system is rigged. And it seems to me that the wealth disparity also uh, plays into the politics and the money in politics and giving the wealthy people more influence. So I'm wondering what the congressman feels about campaign finance reform and what could be done. Yeah, great, great question. Great, great question. Um, uh, the, and the answer is very, very simple. Um, believe, me, believe me, take it from a guy who over the years has had to raise millions and millions and millions of dollars to run for Congress. Uh, you know, forget about what it takes to run for president. Um, that is a deeply broken system. 
Um, it's broken for precisely the reason that the caller said, which is that if your politics are driven by money, um, those with money will have a much louder voice in the system than those without it. So we've got a heck of a challenge, right? Because the Supreme Court and Citizens United decided that dollars were equivalent to political speech. Um, I think that that is addressable. The problem is it's addressable probably through constitutional amendment or from nibbling around the edges with, you know, the kinds of uh, the kinds of measures that we put into what's known as HR one, you know, kind of clean elections voting bill. Uh, but hey, we're, we modeled this in the state of Connecticut, right? Uh, most people who run for office, state office in the state of Connecticut use the public financing system. And that's had the the happy consequence of, first of all, getting people focused on the stuff that matters, like hanging around with the people they represent rather than the people who have money. Um, and number two, it removes so many incentives for, uh, you know, for, for corruption. I mean, in a system in which, which, is, which is flush with money, some percentage of people will, will abuse that system. So, you know, um, it's, it's going to be a slog at the national level, but what we need to do is have more places do what Connecticut has done and really, really work hard to take money out of the system. We'll have to leave it, leave it there. Congressman Jim Himes, thank you for your time. Hopefully one day we'll talk again in a studio, in person. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you very much. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up next, some interesting local races in the Connecticut primary on Tuesday. We'll talk about that. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Politics is never boring. Tuesday was primary day in Connecticut. There were several towns and cities holding um, some interesting races. CT News Junkie reporting the Democratic Party in Hamden and Stanford voted for change when they ousted their sitting mayors in exchange for challengers. Joining us now to talk about these races and more on Zoom with us, Dr. Jonathan Morton, Associate Professor of Political Science and Urban Affairs and Grad School Associate Dean at Southern Connecticut State University. University. Jonathan, welcome back. Morning, Lucy. How you doing? I'm I'm well. And so I know the most watched race seemed to be in Stamford, Democratic Mayor David Martin, unseated by Representative Caroline Simmons. Let's talk about that. Was was it a surprise or no? I think it could have been a, a toss-up. I mean, certainly Simmons has gained a lot of traction um, beyond the fact that she's been a very popular state representative. Uh, she certainly is a well-known brand in, in Stanford, and it's kind of interesting internally. We can't forget within the political party among the Democrats, uh, you know, she narrowly won that endorsement um, from the Democratic Town Committee in Stanford only by a couple of votes. So it's intriguing that the incumbent, uh, you know, uh, Mayor Martin, you know, could not at least uh, get that endorsement. I have to read part of the statement from Mayor Martin. I congratulate Caroline Simmons on her victory. I pledge to do everything I can to get her elected as mayor. He goes on to write, my administration has worked too hard for too long to turn over the future of our great city to Bobby Valentine. Ouch. Talk about that. And what an interesting race coming up in November. 
Well, as a loyal Mets fan, <laughs> I'm gonna, and even a former Stanford resident, I'm going to be especially following this race. Uh, Bobby Valentine's obviously a you know very popular, very well known for his restaurant downtown. Certainly, you know a, a, a resident and and uh, a certainly a you know hometown uh, favorite there. But you know we can't ignore that you know he was a former you know commissioner for a while, and and he only served for about a year or two. And yet, you know, he admitted that that took a lot of time out of his schedule. So it's going to be interesting to see what he, you know, what kind of popularity could it be for him to run as an independent? And we can't forget with this race in particular that there's no Republican candidate running for mayor. So it's really going to be an interesting race to follow. Uh, Where We Live talked to Democratic candidates running for mayor a few weeks ago in New Britain, the New Britain Herald reporting that State Representative Bobby Sanchez uh, won the nomination for mayor. Uh, He beat out Alicia Hernandez strong. Uh, So that's an interesting uh, turnout there. And let's talk about Hamden. What happened? Yeah, Hamden was really interesting. I mean, you know, Lauren Garrett is certainly a, a well-known person because she was former councilwoman. Uh, and the progressives, at least on the Democratic ticket, were split. There were so many candidates trying to run. And in the New Haven area, everybody could not stop talking about this in Hamden. Why internally among the Democrats, there were all these people trying to run. And so some people were saying, was Peter Sear, who, you know, younger at least, was was he actually going to be uh, successful in, in being not so much even winning, but even being a spoiler um, in, in the primary? So it's interesting that Lauren Garrett got the early endorsement from the Democratic uh, Town Committee. But uh, certainly, as you know, Mayor Ling at least uh, uh, lost yesterday. So, and it was quite a turnout. I mean, you know, it's almost 60% supportive for, for Lauren Garrett. Would you say that Hamden's Democratic Party is divided between uh, progressives and moderates? Oh, I absolutely. Uh, certainly somebody who's, who's observed those meetings, um, you know, it's, it's been going on for a while. A part of it is, and, and no surprise, you know, they're the most indebted town per capita. Uh, within the state. And they have one of the highest tax rates in, in the New Haven area. So this is going to be an ongoing concern. One big issue I think you even knew from the school board races there in Hamden uh, is that, you know, public school education is a hot button issue politically and financially. And yet uh, it's going to continue no matter what happens with this mayoral race. You mentioned the school board uh, races. Uh, definitely an interesting topic that we hope to bring up on where we live uh, before November. Uh, I know the town of Guilford um, seems to be uh, quite the center of a split between uh, parents and others and um, feelings about uh, what's being taught in schools uh, related to what they say is critical race theory happening. So we'll be talking about that uh, coming up. Uh, But getting back to these uh, primary races uh, in Hamden, also in Stanford, you had uh, both um, women challengers beating a male incumbent. And so do you see similarities at all in these two towns and cities? I I think that there are. And and I guess I'm more intrigued by what lessons could be learned for, you know, these candidates who've been able to seize their you know, nomination and through certainly the uh, uh, Democratic Party, but even through the primaries and the endorsement of their town committees. Uh, what does this mean for the future? Uh, and and also one thing to consider is, you know, what are the options for, if there are any, for at least the, the, the current mayors? You know, would they consider the possibility of running um, as, as an independent or maybe as another party? Now, we already know with Mayor Martin, he said that he's going to endorse whoever the Democrat candidate is, so I, we, we should be safe to assume that. With Mayor Ling, at least, you saw it at least where it wasn't quite a, you know, resumptive, um, you know, uh, support for 
Lauren Garrett, which shouldn't be so surprising since they certainly have had their, their issues. So, you know, could there be a possibility, for example, what happened in, in West Haven or even what happened in New Haven, where we saw the former mayors, O'Brien and Harp, try to go another way after what happened in their primaries? And we can't forget that only happened, Lucy, you know, not too long ago in both cities. So I'm kind of going to I'm interested in seeing what's the future uh, for, for those candidates. Before we run out of time, let's talk about Woodbury. There was a first selectman primary and mask wearing was an issue. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, you know, first select woman, uh, Park Perkinson, at least, uh, it got the uh, support. But we have to remember the numbers were, were quite intriguing. You know, really, only a third of Republicans turned out. And really, she won 446 versus 402 against Lisa Matrata, who ran on uh, the, uh, you know, concerns surrounding of wearing masks in um, town halls and in town buildings. And so uh, she made that a singular issue. Um, and so the turnout could have been heavier, but it was certainly an interesting race based on, on, on that one issue. One thing we can't forget, too, is that, you know, the first selectman, uh, Butterly, only only passed away, unfortunately, uh, back in 2019. So really, you know, the select woman ha has been in there for one term. Uh, we know local races matter, and we've been talking about just a few that have been interesting. But in terms of just turnout generally, uh, still pretty low, right? Absolutely. I mean, Lucy, you know, this has been my big pet peeve of local politics. We, you know, I so wish that more people would show up in, in these races. I, I Even for what you had mentioned in Guilford, at least you saw a robust turnout, um, at least among the Republicans there, it was almost 50% uh, for the school board races. But you tend to see when it comes to local races, um, at least for the primaries, anywhere from, you know, 20 to maybe 40%. Um, that, that do turn out. And it depends on the town, depends on the city, but it's just such a, you know, a small number when you think about it. So uh, with just a couple minutes left or a little less than that, what will you be watching before November, Jonathan? Oh, I'm going to definitely be paying attention to Hamden. I'm not giving up on it. Part, part of it is because uh, beyond Lauren Garrett's getting, you know, support there, we can't ignore the fact that there are going to be other candidates running for mayor. Um, Ron uh, Gabrielos running on the Republican ticket and Albert uh, Lodo is running as an independent. So that race is not over yet. Uh, but, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see the attention surrounding that. And of course, as you said, with Bobby Valentine going against, you know, Simmons, yes, that's, that's, that's right. something you can ignore. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll we'll have to see if he'll come on the show. That should be very interesting, Dr. Jonathan. Yes, we'll call you, Dr. Jonathan Wharton again. Always a pleasure to hear from you, Associate Professor of Political Science and Urban Affairs, and Grad School Associate Dean at Southern Connecticut State University. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today's show produced by Matt Dwyer on the phones today. Robin Doyne Aiken, our tech producer is Cat Pastor. Back tomorrow. <laughs>